0: men uh, who have um, committed themselves to what's called creationism, as over against evolution or theistic evolution or progressive evolution, and these men believe in a recent uh, earth and a recent universe, 12 to 15,000 years old. They do not believe in the gap theory. They believe the days in Genesis 1 are 24-hour days. Now, the leader of this group is this man, Henry Moore, so I hope we can have him here sometime. Matter of fact, the two leaders... Are Henry Morris and John Whitcomb. And John Whitcomb's up at Grace Theological Seminary, and Henry Morris is out in San Diego now. And uh, uh, this one is a really a fine book. I picked it up, started, I read through about the first two, three chapters. Mr. Davidson's used the whole book, and he says it's outstanding. Unfortunately, the price is a little prohibitive. But you know, books are like, uh, have been hit by inflation just as everything else. Now, a third book. Which is a survey book. It's a, a book written by a man by the name of W-O-O-D-S. I think it's Wood, It's Wood or Woods. And it's, uh, it's, in the, uh, it's about this size. It's a paperback. runs about uh, $2 a quarter. Now, I haven't read too much of it. He's written an outstanding Old Testament survey book, which I've read through it, uh, read parts of it through. It's outstanding. And I would say anything by this man is good. And it's in the bookstore. I got one about two months ago. Now, if you're interested, Genesis chapter 1. Here's an outstanding book by John Whitcomb called The Early Earth. And he takes up, uh, uh, he takes about five, six chapters, the nature of biblical creation, the creation of the universe, creation of plants and animals, the creation of mankind, and was the earth once a chaos. He spends about uh, 30 pages discussing 20 pages, the whole gap theory. And, uh, this man's Grace Theological Seminary. He believes in recent creation. He's going to be here in town, by the way. I think next, early next, sometime in the winter, uh, somebody told me that uh, he's going to be speaking one day at First Evangelical Church. I'm hoping we can have him come over here and speak at chapel. Now, one more book. The state of California has probably done more work, in, uh, uh, more than any other state has done work in, in advancing the creationist viewpoint in public schools, high schools, grade schools, and so on down the line. And the leader in this is this man, Dr. Henry Morris. And uh, a group of scientists, Christian scientists, scientists who are Christians, not Christian scientists, but scientists who are Christians, had developed this book called Scientific Creationism. And this is a book now that's being used in some of the public high schools. And they stay away from religious uh, you know, uh, preaching or anything like that. It's uh, purely scientific. And he deals with the whole problem of evolution and creation and uh, the laws, the second law, of thermodynamics, and how it affects uh, our universe, uniformitarianism or catastrophism, which is involved in the whole subject of how old this world is. And old or young, the universe, old or young, apes or men, and then about 60 pages on creation, according to Scripture. And he takes up the subject of the length of days in Genesis 1, and he takes up the gap theory. And he's not in favor of the gap theory or the day-age theory. All right, now let's uh, take our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to read the first five verses of Genesis chapter 1. Now, I hope you bring your Bible and uh, Genesis chapter 1. Let's read the first five verses of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now, the word deep and waters refers to the same thing. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was the evening, and there came the morning, dash, the first day. And then in Genesis 6-8, you have the uh, creation of the expanse. And in verse 8, it says, God called that expanse heaven, and there Came the evening, and there came the morning, the second day. And then he uh, he uh, gathers the waters together, creates, uh, forms the land, and creates vegetation. Verses nine to thirteen. And verse thirteen says, "And there came the evening, and then there came the morning, the third day, so that a day was reckoned from morning to morning." Then in verses fourteen to nineteen, the creation of the. Uh, sun and the moon and the stars. And we read in verse 19, and then came the evening, and then came the morning, the fourth day. And then in verses 20 to 23, we have the creation of marine life and uh, uh, the birds of the air. That is the animals that, that, uh, whose habitat is the hydrosphere, the water, and the atmosphere, the air. And at the end of that, verse 23, Then came the evening, and then came the morning, the fifth day. Then 24 to 31, God first created, he does two things. The creation of uh, land animals, 25 and 26. And then the creation of man, uh, 26 to 31. And verse 31 says, God saw everything that he had made, built it was very good. And then came the evening, and then came the morning, the sixth day. And then we have uh, verse 2, Genesis 2, and on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made. He rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had made. God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because then he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Notice those two last words, created and made. And both are found in the book of, in Genesis chapter 1. Now let's begin with prayer. Father, we thank Thee for this fine group out here tonight. We thank Thee for this great chapter which gives us an insight into, uh, into the creation of the world and the universe and man. Uh, there are a lot of things that are not here that we perhaps might like to know, but there are sufficient for what we need to know. And so we pray, Lord, that as we move through this chapter, Thou enable us to understand it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let's take just a minute review. Last time we, uh, we looked at the four the pattern of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. In Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, we have the creation of the world. And uh, that creation of the world is in, so to speak, four stages. And that's the outline that you have. I discovered, by the way, how you turn it on. All you have to do is push a little lever here <laughs> from last time. Now... Here's the way I, I view Genesis 1-1 Genesis to 2-3. Does that come out? Is that all right? Is that coming out? All right. Now let's draw a line along here. Genesis 1-1, we have the initial act of creation, the creation of the heavens and earth. Now I can't write all that out. Here is the beginning of the universe. Here's the beginning of what we call this space, time, mass, universe. The creation of the heavens and the earth. And then in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, we have the state of the earth. Immediately with Genesis 2, God uh, turns the focus from the universe to the earth. And from Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 to Revelation chapter 22, the focus is on this earth. And so we have the state of the earth at the time of creation. And we find uh, that four things, as we shall see in just a minute. Well, we find there are four things about that earth at the time it was created. The earth was created perfect but incomplete. The earth was created, may I repeat that, perfect but incomplete. Jesus at the age of five was perfect but incomplete. Jesus at the age of 10 was perfect but incomplete. He had not matured into a full-grown man. So this earth was created perfect. After each stage, God said it was good, it was good. But it wasn't finally formed. And in six days, God formed, verses 3 to uh, 31, God formed this universe which he had made. Now, you remember there were four deficiencies, four incompletenesses. First of all, there was darkness. Darkness covered the deep. Darkness. Second, by that word deep, that means that water was entirely, uh, was over this universe entirely. This whole universe, this whole world was covered with water. There was a shoreless ocean. No land. A shoreless ocean. No land. Third, it was, what are those two words? Without form, it was formless. And number four, it was void or empty or uninhabited. Now, these six days of for creation and formation, because God did some creation on those days and he did some formation, in those six days of formation and creation, God is going to remedy these four deficiencies. So what is the first thing God does in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, on the first day? What does he create? Light. For that darkness, he creates light. And what's the second thing he does on day two and day three? Well, on day two, he divides the waters beneath the atmosphere from the waters above the atmosphere. And then on day three, he... Brings up the dry land, so he creates the oceans, and no longer do we have a shoreless ocean. We've got oceans with shores. That's land, and then and, and it was formless, and that's what he also does on that third day, and then it was empty, uninhabited. So what did he do on the fifth day? He created the uh, on the fifth day he created the ma- the uh, the animals of the sea, the fish, and the animals of the air, the fowl. And on the sixth day, he created land animals and he created man so that no longer was it uninhabited, it was inhabited. And that's taken place in these six days of creation and formation. On the first day, light. On the second day, the expanse called firmament in the in the uh, uh, King James. And then on the third day, the dry land appears and the vegetation. When the dry land appears, there's fertile soil. And from that fertile soil, God creates vegetation, fully aged on the day that he created it. And then on the next day, he creates the heaven, uh, the stars, and the sun, and the moon. See, the light on the first day wasn't from the sun. He creates the sun, the moon, the stars on the fourth day. And then on the fifth day, he creates the animals of the seas and the oceans and he creates the animals that fly in the air. And then on the sixth day, he creates the land animals and man and he's finished. And when he finishes, he's given to this earth form and filling. See, it's no longer uninhabited and it now has form. And then the fourth thing we have here in chapter 2, 1 to 3, the seventh day, God rested. Now that's my view of Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3. I happen to believe, to make it real clear, getting out in the front, I happen to believe that there's no gap between 1, 1 and 1, 2. I don't believe in the gap theory. I was nursed on that. I was reared on the gap theory. I've used it against agnostics but I simply don't believe there's any support for it biblically. And I may take up some time briefly next week and explain why. The gap theory. I also believe, secondly, that the days of Genesis chapter one were 24 hour days. Now there are many fine Bible believers who believe in the gap theory. And there are many fine Bible believers who believe that the days of Genesis one were long periods of time. Matter of fact, one of our board members who died 14, 15, 16 years ago, Major Allen was very strongly committed to the day age theory. Matter of fact, he wrote a little booklet on it. And uh, he was very firmly convinced of the day age theory. I'm not. I believe that my study, uh, I've come to the conclusion that there's no gap, that the days of Genesis 1 were 24 hour days, and that this is a recent universe, 12 to 15,000 years. Now, last time we took up, number one, the creation of the heavens and the earth. We took up the creation of the space, time, mass, universe. And then secondly, we took up the state of the earth at the time of creation. And we noticed that there were four things, four incomplete factors. What are those four incomplete factors? Number one, darkness. Number two, water, the deep water covered the whole earth. Matter of fact, this earth may have been somewhat in a fluid condition as far as we know. Number three, it was formless. No mountains, no seas, no, no, uh, no arroyos, nothing, nothing. Just water entirely over this earth. And the fourth thing, it was uninhabited. There was no habitation. Now will you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18. In Isaiah 45, 18, the same words that are used in Genesis 1, verse 2, are also used in Isaiah 45, 18. Now we read in Isaiah 45, 18, For thus saith the Lord who created the heavens, God himself who formed the earth and made it. He has established it. He created it not in vain. There's that same word that you have in Genesis 1-2. He formed it to be what? That's that same word, only the opposite. Where you have that word empty, that's that same word. Now, I think what Isaiah means here, what the Holy Spirit means here, uh, when it says he hath established it, he created it not in vain, he means he created it not ultimately to be formless and not ultimately to be uninhabited. And in six days, he, he remedied that situation. He took this incomplete world, this incomplete earth, and gave it form and gave it inhabitant. And so uh, this is one of the stock verses that's used, you know, for the gap theory. I don't believe it teaches uh, the gap theory. Barnhouse is very greatly committed to the gap theory. When I went to Dallas Seminary, most of the men at Dallas Seminary were at that time committed to what is called the gap theory, or the cataclysmic theory. And that is between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-3, you have what Barnhouse used to call a great grand canyon of time. It was an accommodation to geology. Geology speaks of these vast, vast ages, vast, vast ages, in in which uh, we have the sediments laid down. And, you know, you go out to Grand Canyon, as I have been, and this boy, those days, the crew cut, when I used to go out, just got out of the University of Colorado, the University of Utah, and they brought him down there to guide. He'd say, you see there, all those, that inch, every inch represents a 1,000 years. And this has been forming by erosion for the last million and a half years, see? Now, the, the basic assumption of evolution is the dogma of uniformitarianism, that the present is the key to the past. So that if in the present culture it takes 50 years for water to wear down that stone an inch, then in the Grand Canyon it took 500,000 years or 1,500,000 years to wear it down that far because the way it it erodes today is exactly the way it eroded in the past. So the present is the key to the past. And what Henry Morris has done and what John Whitcomb and what these scientists in the last 20 years have done is to lay hold of the juggler vein of evolution. And the juggler vein of evolution is not Genesis 1 and 2, it's Genesis 6 to 9. And, and, And instead of uniformitarianism, the Bible teaches the doctrine of cataclysm, that a great cataclysm took place which left almost irreparable damage upon this earth and that all of these uh, signs of lengthy age and time were, were uh, formed within 40, 50 days and give us the appearance of age. And you know something? That's exactly what Peter says in Second Peter chapter two, 3. Peter challenges the dogma of uniformitarianism in 2 Peter chapter 3. I looked at the geology book a short while ago. And on page 20 of that geology book was a paragraph on uniformitarianism. And what it said was, modern geologists simply do not even argue uniformitarianism. It's assumed as a fact. But as a matter of fact, it's not assumed as a fact. And the Bible challenges the of uniformitarianism. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3 that this they are willfully ignorant of, that the world was overflowed with a flood. And as a matter of fact, it speaks in 2 Peter 3 of three worlds. And it calls that world before the flood, it calls it the world that was. And it calls this present world, the now world, and it calls the world that's going to be created after, after the millennium when it's destroyed by fire, it calls it the new world, the new heavens and the earth, three worlds. And just as there will be a drastic change between this world And the new world, because in the new world, there'll be no sea, no ocean. Revelation 22, 1. Revelation 21, verse 1. No sea, no sea in the new world. So there was this drastic a change between the first world of Genesis 1 through 9 and the present world. And a doctrine of biblical catastrophism stands over against the evolutionary doctrine of uniformitarianism. And that's where the dogma of evolution needs to be challenged, right at that point. And these men, in this book, by the way, Scientific Creationism, uh, challenge that. And uh, a book was written about 12 years ago called The Genesis Flood, written by these two men, Whitcomb and Morris. And I think in a few years, it'll be a classic. And I recommend some of the classes, and maybe in one or two of you, work through that book. It's a hard book to work through. But the evidence, I think, is, uh, is really overwhelming. Now, let's take up these six days, these six days of creation and formation. We've looked at the creation of the heavens and the earth, and we looked at the state of the earth time of creation. Now, we're going to look at the six days of creation and formation. Now, will you please take out that outline, and um, let's look at those six. We just read them. May I have an outline? Just uh, I left one back there. Thank you, sir. Look at those six days of creation. Please get that out, look at it, we'll read it. On the first day, the creation of light, Genesis 1, 3 to 5. On the second day, the creation of the atmosphere and the hydrosphere. And in between them, the firmament or the expanse. On the third day, the formation of the dry land and the oceans and the creation of vegetation. On the fourth day, the creation of the sun, moon, and stars. On the fifth day, the creation of animals in the seas, the marine animals, and the animals in the air, the fowls of the air. And on the sixth day, the creation of land, surface animals, and man. Now, let's take up those six days and get as far as we can on these six days. First day is the creation of life. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 1 and read verses 1 to 3 once again. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. And God said, let there be light. There, you know, there's a pattern to all of these. It's what they call F-I-A-T, Fiat, and fulfillment. Fiat means a command. So in each one of these six days, there's a fiat, there's a command, and there's a fulfillment. We don't have time. I don't want to take the time. But you'll find that in every one of these, there's kind of a pattern. God said, and, uh, and then second, he, he, he said something, let there be light, or let this happen. And then he did it. And then he looked upon it, and he said it was good, and then there was the evening morning, the first day, the sixth day, fourth day, whatever it is. There's a pattern to all of these. Basically, a command and then fulfillment. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there came evening, and there came morning, dash, the first day. All right, now here's the first deficiency remedy. You remember we said there were four deficiencies in Genesis 1-2, and I don't quite like to use that word deficiency, but the word incompletenesses is a hard word to say. But there are four incomplete things that needed formation. And the first one, darkness over all this universe, and so here God remedies that by creating light. And, of course, light is the most essential thing that we have, I suppose. It would be terrible to wander around in a dark universe. Many, many years ago, I went through Carlsbad Caverns. I mentioned on a radio broadcast either last Sunday or this coming Sunday, and uh, they'd take you down the caverns, and at one place, they'd turn out all the lights. And I'll tell you, if you've ever been in a dark place, it's a dark place in the cavern when they turn out all the lights. It's abysmal. You can almost feel it. You can almost feel it. Well, there wasn't any light. Total darkness at this point. And the first thing God made was light because light, of course, enables us to move around. Uh, source of hell, source of heat, source of so many things. And uh, we believe that Jesus Christ himself, God created by his word. All God did was speak the word in all of these. God spoke the word. And by his word, this world was called into existence. By his word, this light was called into existence. Now, the question arises, what was this light? What did he uh, create here? What was this light? Well, I don't think it was the sun. I think that was created on the fourth day. Now, there are two or three views on that among Bible believers. I simply believe that what God created here was the light waves. In other words, my friend, you know, it's just as easy for God to create the product, the light waves, as it is to create the generator. On the fourth day, God created the generator. On the first day, he created the product, the light waves. And neither one is difficult with God. Now, immediately the question comes up, well, there's light before the sun. Well, we know that there's light before the sun. Lightning represents light apart from the sun. And some scientists tell us that the aurora borealis represents light apart from the sun. And some scientists tell us today that... that, uh, that as far as the sun is concerned, that light is simply a covering of the sun, it surrounds the sun. Whether it comes essentially from the sun, they're not quite sure. But that really doesn't bother me. If God wanted to create light apart from the sun, if God is omnipotent, then he can do it. And I think that what God created here on the first day was light. And that light uh, had the same function that it did on the fourth day. On the fourth day, God created the sun And and he, he created the sun, and the light came from the sun, and that light divided the day from the darkness. So did the light on the first day. I believe, furthermore, that when God created this light on the first day and created it on the fourth day, he created it. Now, you'll have to listen here. He created it with the light ways already striking the earth. In other words, all through this, I believe that God created this universe with the appearance of age in it. See? I believe that God created this universe with the appearance of age. So when the scientists tell us that light waves have been traveling a million and a half years, and therefore this universe is a million and a half years old, we say, well, now that's on the assumption that the light wave was created starting from the sun. I don't think so. I think our analogy here is not our present uh, means God's means of providence, the analogy here, the illustration, the miracles of Jesus. And I'll deal with that in a, a few minutes. And then God called the light day, which means that it was 12 hours long. And he called the night dark, uh, darkness night. And then came evening. And then came morning, the first day. Now, three questions. Was there light before the sun? My answer to that is yes. Second question is, what is the length of the day here? I believe the length of the day was 24 hours. Now, there, um, on these days, there are probably three basic views on these days. Number one is the view which I hold, and that is that these were 24-hour days. The second view is that these were long periods of time. And there's some men who believe that these days were long periods of time. The Bible speaks of the day of the Lord. We know that the day of the Lord is a 1,007 years because the day of the Lord includes the seven years tribulation and the 1,000 years millennium. So the day of the Lord is a 1,007 years. And we say that every dog has his day. We don't mean 24 hours. But I don't think it means that here. And I'll... If I have time, I'll explain why I don't believe it. I believe this is a 24-hour day. Now, there are men who believe, and these are Bible believers, and this is Augustine's view, that these six days are not days of creation. They were days of revelation. And, of course, he believed they're 24-hour days. But they are 24-hour days in which God, uh, six days of 24 hours each, in which God revealed to Augustine, how he, uh, God revealed to Moses how he created this world. And they don't give us any indication of how long it took God to create it. Maybe 24 hours, maybe 24 minutes, maybe twenty-four billion years. We don't know. But these are days of revelation. Now, I believe that they're 24-hour days. I hope to have time, at least here, or next one, to explain why. Then the third question we ask is, how was this day reckoned? Well, the day was reckoned from morning to morning. How do we reckon our day today? Midnight to midnight, is that right? The Jew reckoned his day from evening to evening so that Friday for the Jew began Thursday night at 6 p.m. and ran to Thursday night, Friday night, 6 p.m. The Romans reckoned time from 6 a.m. to 6 6 a.m. And when you come to the synoptic gospels, there's a problem there. Uh, which I'm not going to get into, in the reckoning of the time of the crucifixion. But here God reckoned from from uh, morning to morning. So when we read in every one of these, look at verse 6, the end of verse 6, and the evening, the morning, of the first day, that's rather an unwieldy translation. At the end of verse 8, and the evening, the morning, with the second day, the end of verse 13, the evening, the morning, with the third day, the end of verse 19, the evening, and the morning of the fourth day, the end of verse 23, the evening, and the morning, of the fifth day, the way that could be read and translated more correctly is this. There came evening, and there came morning, first day. There came evening, and there came morning, second day. So that day was reckoned from morning to there came evening, and then from that evening to the morning, there came morning, the first day. So the day ran from morning to morning. And the second day from morning to morning. And the third day and so on from morning to morning. Here then is the first day, the creation of life. All right, now let's read Genesis chapter 168. The second day, the creation of the atmosphere and the hydrosphere. Verses 6, 7, and 8. And God said, Let there be a firmament. And the word firmament is expand. Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and divided the waters which are under the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. So there's lower waters and then there's the expanse and then there's upper waters. And it was so. And God called the expanse, heaven, there came evening, there came boarding, the second day. Now we have to be careful and translate that expanse. Why, Will? Because the, uh, those who oppose the Bible say, you see here, uh, the Bible is committed to a medieval view of the universe, a three-story view of the universe, as though the universe has a great roof over the top and the earth is flat and it has a great roof over it. And that roof is called the expanse. But that's a poor translation. Uh, Firmament. Something firm, a roof up there. But that's not what this word is. This word is expanse. And it's what we would call today our atmosphere. Now you notice there are three things here. God divides the lower waters from the upper waters. So we got the lower waters, which are the shoreless oceans, and then we've got the, uh, the expanse in between, and then we have that protective canopy, the upper waters of that thing. Uh, maybe we can find out how to turn this thing and turn it on. Now, uh, I'm neither the, an artist nor the son of an artist, but hopefully this may do. This earth was... Uh, um, that's real poor to start off with. That looks like an egg. And I laid an egg. All right, now this earth was covered with water. It may have been in quite a fluid state until the third day it was covered with water. What God did was to divide the waters and remove part of those waters up here. And then in between he put the expanse, or as you have it, the firmament. So we have here the lower, the lower waters those shoreless oceans until the third day, the waters that covered this earth, the lower waters. And then you had the expanse, which we would call the atmosphere, the expanse of the atmosphere, called the, called the firmament, which is expanse, and called heaven, the atmospheric heaven, not the sidereal heaven. Then above that, you have the, you have the upper water, the upper waters are not the clouds. See, the clouds are in here. The upper waters were the, are not the clouds, and there were no clouds until the time of the flood. There was no rain, Genesis 2, 5, and there was no rainbow, Genesis chapter 9. So there are no clouds. Here was a upper waters, which was a great um, vapor water canopy, a protective canopy, a protective canopy. So you had the lower waters, this is what God divided. This is the second act of division right here. First act was day from night, light from darkness. Here's the second act of division. The lower waters were separated from the water, upper waters. These were in fluid form. these are probably in vapor form. And that formed a vapor canopy, a protective vapor canopy up beyond the, um, up beyond the expanse, the atmosphere. Now. Dr. Henry Morse, uh, in his book, discusses that and discusses the uh, reasons for that um, vapor canopy. I don't have time uh, to read it. More than that, I probably can't find it. (laughs) But he discusses it. He said such a canopy would accomplish the following services. For example, uh, since what? Number one, he discusses nine purposes of this. Has ability, this water vapor to transmit incoming solar radiation and to retain and disperse much of the radiation reflected from the Earth's surface. With nearly, second, with nearly uniform temperatures, great air mass movements would be inhibited. No cyclones, no hurricanes. Number three, with no global air circulation, the hydrologic cycle of the present world would not be implemented and there could be no rain except that which God, you know, brought up like a mist in Genesis 2. And uh, maintain at uniform temperatures, he speaks of how healthy would be. Number seven, a vapor canopy would also be highly effective in filtering out ultraviolet radiations, cosmic rays, and other destructive energies from outer space. And this enters into the explanation of the long periods of time men lived before what event. Before the flood, before the flood. They lived seven, eight, nine hundred years before the flood. But after the flood, 500 years, 250 years, 180 years, and now our present three score and ten years. That protective water canopy helped men. Now that's the thing, if you turn over to Genesis chapter, Genesis chapter um, seven. Genesis chapter 7. When God sent the flood, the water for the flood came from two places. Genesis chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken out. That's the subterranean waters. They were unleashed to come up to the surface of the earth. The great fountains, uh, the fountains of the great deep, were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened. Now, when you look at the flood and study it, that can't simply be a heavy rain like we got here about a week ago. That couldn't be the clouds. I think the windows of heaven refers to this great water canopy that precipitated and fell in a great deluge upon this earth, and the under this subterranean uh, fountains, of the deep were loosed. And between these two, uh, water covered all this earth. You know how high that water was? How high? How high? As high as the highest mountain. I've been out to Mount Wilson, California. And, uh, uh, you know, you think of 14,000 feet high, 14,000 feet high, that's almost three miles, isn't it? Can you think of three miles of water covering the whole surface of the globe? It would have catastrophic effects. And clouds couldn't, clouds couldn't explain it. What caused the flood? These great subterranean uh, res- reservoirs of water. Millions of miles and acres, square miles and acres, along with this great vapor canopy that fell upon this earth. God dissolved it, precipitated dissolved it, it fell upon this earth. When that happened, a lot of things changed. And one of them, God said, that's the world that was. And the world before the flood was so different, God called it the world that was, in contrast to the world we have right now. And uh, and immediately, the length of men's lives began to diminish because that protective vapor canopy was removed. Will you turn with me to Psalm 140? 6, 148, Psalm 148. I think we may have a suggestion here that during the millennium that canopy may be restored. Do you know how long they're going to live in the millennium? Well, some will live all the way through it. Why, Isaiah says that in the millennium, a man that's 100 years old and dies is going to be considered an infant. <laughs> See, a man that's, uh, why we say that a man gets to the 70 or 80, he's in his second childhood. Well, the Bible says that when a man dies in the millennium at the age of 100, he's going to be considered an infant because they're going to live. If a man lives properly before God, he'll live through the whole millennium, 1,000 years. And angels, and of course, children will be born. And some of board born 300 miles along in the millennium, 300 Uh, 300 years along the millennium, live the other 700, see? And so there'll be people living uh, 500, 600, 700, 800, 900 years in the millennium. And they will look young, see? Man that's 500 will look as young as uh, perhaps somebody that's 45 or 50. Uh, You know, I, I had a fella that years and years ago, I had a fella in my class that flunked about every course I taught. He didn't take many from me. But he flunked them all. He flunked most courses. But he was uh, exceedingly capable of asking irrelevant questions. <laughs> and I'd be teaching the book of Romans and had my mind geared to teaching the book of Romans and really moving in, you know. And I'm kind of single-tracked. When I get on Romans, I'm in Romans, nowhere else. And he'd raise his hand in the back. He'd, well, I, don't, I normally, you know, look the other way. But he kept waving it, waving. And I remember one time he waved it, teaching the book of Romans, he waved it. I said, all right, what is it? And I called his name. He said, Dr. Crichton, uh, how, old was, uh, how old was Sarah when, a- when she went down into Egypt Genesis 20? How do I know how old is Sarah when she went down to Egypt Genesis 20? Uh, but another boy asked me about it about a week later. You know, when, when Abraham went down in Egypt, when Abraham went down in Egypt, Genesis 20... Isaac was already born. Sarah was 87 years of age when Isaac was born. And the king of Egypt desired her because she was a beautiful woman at 90 years of age, ladies. Well, how do you account for that? Well, in those days, you see, they lived 175, 180, 190 years. So that a lady at 85 relatively would only be maybe 35 or 40 years of age. And that's how I believe we explain it. Now, look at Psalm 140. Now, I don't have any secrets, so don't come up to me later on. <laughs> 85 and looking good. But, uh, uh, but, um, and you know, I learned as a young preacher that whenever you speak of elderly people, they're old men, but they're mature ladies. See, <laughs> I try to watch myself. Boy, I, I, I never guess a lady's age. Don't ask me. I remember I was... George, Hearn, and I were looking for an apartment one time. We were going to room together. Both of us were single. Lady had an apartment. I shouldn't tell this, but I am anyway. Uh, lady had an apartment, and, uh, and uh, we got in there. We were joshing with her, and the price was about $140. It was really exorbitant. And she got on, and she wanted us to guess her age. Well... Gospel truth was she is between 65 and 70. I knew it from other purposes, but I said, Listen, you know, I believe you're about 52. (laughs) She offered that apartment to us for $80. (laughs) But we still didn't move in. All right, look at Psalm 148. Psalm 148. Praise Him. Psalm 148, verse 4. Praise Him. You heavens of heavens, and you waters that are where? Above the heavens. If that refers to the atmosphere, perhaps that's the restoration of that vapor canopy for protective reasons in the millennium. Verse 6, he has also established them forever and ever. He has made a decree which shall not pass. And that perhaps may be restored in the millennium. There is the second day, the creation, the creation, the formation of the expanse and that vapor canopy for the well-being of man. All right, now let's go to the third day. The third day. Verses 9 to 13. Genesis chapter 1, 9 to 13. And you know what we're going to do? We're just going to go to about eight thirty eight thirty five, 35, and we'll just stop where we are and pick up at the next time because um, it's just difficult. Either I could do one of two ways, race through it, and then you wouldn't understand it. And I think most people are interested in, understanding it to a degree, or else we can spend a little time. Now let's look at the third day, verses 9 to 13, Genesis 1. And God said, and God said, notice what are the first three words in your Bible in verse 3? God said, and in verse 6, the first three words. And in verse 9, God said, you see there's a pattern only. Verse 14, and God said, Now, let's begin at verse 9. Here is the formation of the dry land and oceans and the creation of vegetation. God said, let the waters under the heaven, that's the waters on this earth, let the waters under the atmosphere be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters called He seeds, the formation of the oceans. And God saw that it was good. Then a second thing. And God said, Let the earth bring forth vegetation, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, and the herb yielding seed after its kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after its kind. Those are the two important words. The seed in itself and after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the third day. Now here are two things on the third day. Two things. First, the formation of the dry land and the oceans. And second, the creation of the vegetation. Now, let's look at these two. First of all, in verses 9 and 10, we have the formation of the dry land and the oceans. He says in verse 9, let the waters under the heaven, that is the waters under the atmosphere. What he is talking about is this shoreless ocean that covered the whole world. Now, I tend to believe that, 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 that this earth at that time, this planet at that time, was in much more of a fluid state than it is at the present time. But I have no way of uh, proving that. But uh, I have to believe that and, that and that what God did here is to, is to somehow, uh, by tremendous chemical reaction, form our solids in this universe. And some rose and some did not rise And along with that, the subterranean water reservoirs. Now, you notice this is the third act of division, isn't it? What was the first act of division? Light from darkness. What was the second act of division? Waters below from the waters above. Now, here's the third act of division. He divides the oceans, the seas, and the dry land appears. And the agent, of course, is the Word of God. And uh, by tremendous chemical reactions, God formed this present land, uh, perhaps by the formation of solids and by uh, uh, other means. And the land arose, uh, which we have today. Not in the same shape, of course, because what we have today, when we go up to East Tennessee in the Rocky Mountains, we drive out to California across the... San Bernardino Mountains or the Rocky Mountains or the Smokies up in East Tennessee is post-diluvian. This is anti-diluvian. What we have there and the Grand Canyon is post-diluvian. And our present world is formed after the flood. This is the formation of the earth before the flood. But no doubt it had its mountains and it had its rivers. And it says one water means that probably all the waters on the surface of the earth and in the rivers and in the lakes were all connected somehow with the subterranean waters at the same time. And I suppose that's what it means when it says the waters be gathered together in one place. It doesn't mean there's just one ocean. Many oceans, but gathered together in one place means I, I gather that they were all connected together. So the dry land appears. That means that the land is now fertile. And that means that the land that's fertile is now ready for the next thing. What's the next thing we have? Vegetation. You couldn't have vegetation without fertile land. And you couldn't have animals without fertile land. So after God divides the expanse, he parts the ocean and brings up the dry land it makes it fertile, so it prepares for the, for the vegetation. Now this is not our present ocean system. We have seven seas, according to the old song, you sail the seven seas. But that's not this right here. We don't know what form it took. May have well been that um, may have well been that Africa and South America prior to the flood were connected. You get a map of Africa and South America. You notice that they're formed the same way. And in Genesis chapter 11, it says in his day, Peleg, Peleg, which means division, in Peleg's day, it was divided. Now that may refer to the vision of tongues in Genesis 11 because chronologically, Genesis 10 takes place after Genesis 11. Genesis 10 tells us about the table of nations and languages. Genesis 11 tells us how that was accomplished. So Genesis 11, 1 to 10 precedes Genesis chapter 10 and it says there that in his day Genesis 11 Peleg's day it was divided now was that languages or does that mean the earth was divided I don't know but it might have been this flood that Africa South America were hinged together because of the flood the cataclysmic effects of the flood they were divided then the second thing we have here is the creation of the vegetation verses 11 and 12 and 13 now notice here Already there was preparation. What was that preparation? The dry land. See, there was preparation for this vegetation. There was a blanket of fertile soil already prepared for vegetation. Now what was God's work? God's work was organizing. God used the chemical elements of the earth. God's work was organizing those chemical elements of the earth into complex systems, giving them life, each with reproductive power. That's what it means when it says whose seed was in itself, reproductive power, capable of reproducing after its kind. Now, the material that was used were the chemical elements of the earth. The product was highly complex. It was invested with life. Not conscious life, but life. Capable of reproducing. Whose seed was in itself. Capable of reproducing itself. So the seed is dropped into the ground, it comes up, and the seed from that drops into the ground, and it comes up again. Capable of reproducing after its kind. That began on the third day. Now there are three main orders of plant life. And I suppose these are intended to cover all plant life, although some of them may have disappeared. At the flood, the time of the flood. What are those three kinds of plant life? Well, verse eleven, and let the earth bring forth. What do you have? Grass or vegetation. Grass, and second, the herb yielding seed, the herb with a power of reproduction, and the fruit tree, yielding fruit after its kind, whose seed is in itself. Verse 12, and the earth brought forth grass or vegetation, the herb yielding seed after its kind, and the tree yielding fruit. Now, you got three things. you got the grasses and the herbs and the trees. The grasses, I suppose, refer to all that ground-covering vegetation, like grass and ivy and so on down the line. The herbs, I suppose, represent the bushes and the shrubs. And the trees refer to all the woody plants that we have, including fruit trees. Now, when it says, verse 11, let the earth bring forth, I hope you listening. He doesn't mean that God said, let these things evolve from the earth. What God did here, I believe, he did in 24 hours. So when he says, let the earth bring forth, He's not supposing that there was a seed down there and God said, let that seed germinate and spring forth and maybe take a year to do it. What was done here was done instantaneously. God used the chemical chemical system of the earth to develop this, but he created it instantaneously, created grass instantaneously and the fruit-bearing trees instantaneously and invested them with life, uh, the kind of life that can reproduce, vegetative life to reproduce after itself. That means that God created this world with the appearance of age. Now, that's a very important principle, and I believe it, that God created this world with the appearance of age. And I think we have the same thing when we come to the animal period. And the prophet did it one day, and it said its seed is in himself. We don't want, we must distinguish between the processes. Now, here's a process here, a process by which God used the soil to create, just as he did man. But we don't want to confuse, and I hope you're listening, the processes which we observe today, which are the processes of providence. And the processes God used in those first six days were the processes of creation. The processes of providence the, the, uh, the egg is fertilized within a woman. And then it grows for nine months during the period of pregnancy. And then the infant is born. And then he grows and grows and grows, 18, 20, 22 years. That's the process of providence today. But listen, when God created Adam, he didn't create him a little infant. See? He created them fully mature. So if a man came up, saw Adam one day, he'd say, Adam, you've been on this earth for 25 years. And Adam would say, no, I've only been here for one month. Well, you look 25 years old. You don't look one month old. You look 25 years old. Now, I'm not being facetious here, you see. You look 25 years old. No, I'm only one month old. God created Adam with the, what did I call that? Appearance of age. I want you all to say that. God created Adam with what? Appearance of age. When God created the animals, He created them with the appearance of age. When God created the trees, He created them with the appearance of age. Did He put rings within the redwood trees in California? I don't know. But He created with the appearance of age. The analogy, the analogy to the uh, days of creation, the analogy to God's creative works now are not his works of providence today. And the old Westminster Shorter Catechism was very profoundly correct when it distinguished between God's work of creation and God's work of providence. God's work of creation is instantaneous and immediate and with the appearance of age. God's work of providence is over a period of time. And what we have in Genesis 1 is not God's work of providence. That begins in Genesis 2. The God's work of creation. See, now the analogy that is the miracles of Jesus. Let me take one illustration. The illustration is found in John chapter two. John chapter two. Jesus turned water into wine. Jesus turned water into wine. How long does it take water, grape juice to ferment, or water to change into wine? I don't know, but I know it takes a long, quite a long time. Supposing now, look here. Supposing a man. In come along at that marriage feast and had gotten that wine which I don't believe was fermented in that case and got hold of that and, uh, and looked at it he would have said to Jesus my this has been preparing for many many months what would have Jesus said no it was formed instantaneously it looked like, it looks like it formed for many, many months. It may look like it was formed many, many months, but it was changed instantaneously. That wine has, what is that statement? That wine has in it what? The appearance. Will you all say that? The appearance. Now that's, that's basic in understanding Genesis 1. Look here. When those light rays, when the sun was created on the fourth day, those light trails were created hitting the earth. The eye used to wonder as a boy. Well, that light ray, light travels 186,000 miles per second. We get getting some here that we're traveling 30,000 years. Then this earth's got to be 30,000 years, the universe 30,000 years old. The answer to that is, that God created with that light ray striking the earth because light was created with the appearance of age. When he created the vegetation, with the appearance of age. When he created the animals, the appearance of age. When he created man, the appearance of age. Or else they couldn't reproduce after their kind at that stage. So when God created this vegetation, he created it full grown. And then from then on, The seed falls into the ground and develops. And from then on, it's providence. But on these six days, it's creation and not providence. Now, we're going to close by looking at two critical phrases. And that's next time we'll have to take up with the fourth day. Two critical phrases. And those two critical phrases are found two or three times. Look at verse 11 and 12. God said, let the earth bring forth vegetation, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind, whose seed is in itself. Verse 12, And the earth brought forth vegetation, herb yielding seed after its kind, and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after its kind. Now the two statements are, number one, whose seed was in itself and after its kind. The first one is, whose seed was in itself. That means that these plants and these vegetation, later that same thing is said of animals, and it's also said of man, that means that it has reproductive ability. Reproductive ability. It can germinate. Now when God created it, uh, he didn't create it by reproduction. He created it just as that states. He created it. But from then on, God didn't create it. It reproduced after its kind. And he put within that vegetation, and he put within animals, and he put within man reproductive capacities. So it was able to reproduce uh, in itself. That's what that phrase meant, whose seed was in itself had reproductive ability. Now, the second one is this word, after its kind. After its kind. That means there are limits. There's variation, but there's variation within limits. See, Now that, of course, stands right directly across evolution. What is that kind? Well, I don't know and nobody does really know. Is it it, uh, the genera? Uh, Is it a uh, species? Is it a family? What is that comparable to? Well, nobody knows, and it may be that one area it's comparable to genera, one to species, one to family. We're not sure. But this thing I do know, this thing I do believe, that although there is horizontal variation, there is no vertical variation. Although there may have been created a couple of dogs, and out of that you had 200 dogs developed, 200 kinds of dogs, a dog never moved up and became a cat, see? Horizontal, I'm not being facetious. variety, variation within the kind, but no overstepping the limits after its kind. In other words, evolution says that there is one family tree in nature, one family tree. And out of this family tree came cats and whales and dogs and man. See, out of one, out of its single cell down here, one family tree. Not at all. The Bible pictures it as a great forest of trees. Great forest of trees. So here's the dog, that's one tree. And here's the cat, one tree. And here's another tree, and here's another, and here's man. We've got Man, now man is developed into various races, but he comes from the one tree. But you never have transferred the dog to the cat and the cat to the ape and the ape to the man. The Bible believes in what's called a forest of trees, not a single tree. So, and that's what it means by this word, K, N. And, and what, is the, what are the two words before that? What are the two words before the word kind? After. After its kind. It reproduces after its kind. There's variety within the kind, but it never oversteps that. There's horizontal movement, but no vertical movement. It stays within its kind. And in the development, there were limits, and what I like to say, variation within limits. Variation with limits. Horizontal variation, yes. Out of one dog, two dogs, two dogs, many dogs, see? But variation horizontally, but not variation vertically. Now, I didn't, I didn't get that phrase. I borrowed it. <laughs> I'll have to be truthful and say that. All right, that's as far as we can get tonight. And uh, we're going to close at 25 to 9. So next time, what we're going to take up You'll look here now and be real quiet while I make some announcements. (laughs) What we're going to take up next time is the fourth day, the fifth day, and the sixth day. And we're going to look especially at the creation of man. I've handled a couple of things already that would have taken us time, that one about kind. And next time, I'll probably take up uh, why I believe in the 24-hour day and why I don't believe in the day-age theory. And I especially want to leave about 20 or 25 minutes at the end of our study next time to speak on the creation of man. And I say that when man was created, there are seven basic facts. Created directly, created after the image of God, created bisexually, which means a man for a woman, not a man for a man. See? And that's stated in Genesis chapter one We're going to look at that next time. I'd like to make about for announcements.